Hi, welcome to the podcast of our Revelation study here at First Baptist Church to Queen as we are looking through the entire book of Revelation. My name is Pastor Josh Herwick, and I'm the pastor here at First Baptist to Queen. And throughout several months, we've been looking verse by verse through the book of Revelation. If you have any questions or comments, please contact us here at First Baptist Church through our website, duqueen.church. Uh, there on our website, you can find all the information you need to get in contact with us. And we can't wait to hear from you. So feel free to drop a like or share this podcast uh, if you find it helpful. Now, we're nearing the end of the book of Revelation. Um, today, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, and then there's only two more sessions after this one because there's only 22 chapters in the book itself. Uh, so today, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 20. Well, let's take a look at the first three verses. John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, notice uh, back in Revelation chapter 19, uh, we saw Jesus coming in to, to fight a battle. Uh, the, the beast and the, the false prophet under Satan's influence have gathered uh, all of the world's armies to fight uh, against the kingdom of God. Jesus shows up, a, a sword comes out of his mouth. Um, the beast and the false prophet are uh, grabbed from the battle and they are thrown uh, into the lake of fire, that is hell. But here we notice uh, that an angel comes out and seizes the dragon. Jesus does not deal with Satan directly. He delegates that task. He just sends another angel to take care of him. And Satan is bound and he is sentenced to the abyss for a thousand years. Now, a thousand years, that, that phrase is mentioned in both Psalm 90 verse 4 and 2 Peter 3 verse 8 to uh, comparing a single day uh, to God's eternal perspective. But the thousand-year reign that is spoken of here in these verses and in the verses to follow is typically called the millennial kingdom or the millennium. And this is very hotly debated among um, different scholars concerning the book of Revelation. But there are three main ideas attempting to explain what this thousand-year reign is. Uh, one of the uh, main ideas, one of the main explanations is called pre-millennialism. Uh, Jesus, and what that says is that Jesus will return and then Satan will literally be bound in a literal abyss, a literal bottomless pit for a thousand year period in which Jesus will physically reign as king on the earth. Uh, there's another one uh, attempt to explain um, uh, this thousand-year reign, and it is called millennialism. It's an A in front of the word millennialism. Uh, what that one says is that Jesus lived, he died, and he rose from the dead, at which time Satan was bound and thrown into the abyss. And so what this line of thinking says is that uh, the thousand-year reign is the symbolical age of the church in which we're currently living. 
so they take the thousand years as a symbol uh, representing this church age that we are living in now from the time of the introduction of the church from Acts chapter 2 all the way through now. Uh, now there's another explanation uh, that is offered up, and it is called um, post-millennialism. So you have premillennialism, millennialism, and post-millennialism. Now in post-millennialism, uh, it's described as, or what it says is that the church will usher in a thousand-year peaceful reign of Christ through evangelism. And then Satan will be released and Jesus will return in victory. Now, any of those, you know, nobody really knows. These are all just thoughts and, and potential explanations of what this means. People are trying to read into the text and see what it is there. Uh, to me, though, um, it would seem that the thousand years are symbolic for completeness. For at the end of the section, Satan gathers the world together through deception to make war against Jesus, which they've already done in chapter 19. So ultimately, and whatever it means, these verses seem to suggest that Satan uh, is restricted by God from deceiving the nations into the battle um, until God allows it. God, you know, Satan can't deceive the nations to bring them into battle against God until God allows it to happen. And now I could totally be wrong, or any of these other guys could totally be wrong, and it could be mean something we hadn't even thought of yet. But to me, that's, that's the way I uh, read it there. And so then uh, what it would seem then to be to me is that Revelation chapter 20 could be a behind-the-scenes look, a, a spiritual glimpse at what transpired in the spiritual realm leading up to the battle in Revelation chapter 19. And it's also important to point out a couple of things. The thousand-year reign is not specifically said to take place on earth. We're going to see that again in just a little bit. Uh, This is also not said to be the second coming of Christ itself, um, specifically here. And then Satan is released. And a Upon his release, he's allowed to deceive the nations for a period. Notice also that Satan is restricted only from being able to deceive the nations. He's not restricted from any other form of evil or temptation. Look at verse 4. John writes, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. For the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So these martyrs, martyrs here, martyrs are to reign with Jesus. Now, again, like I said a minute ago, John does not mention the location of the reigning, but we can draw some conclusions. The word throne itself is used 47 times throughout the book of Revelation. And except for Satan's throne in Revelation 2, verse 13, and the beast's throne in Revelation 13, verse 2, and 16, verse 10, uh, all mentions of the word throne seem to be in heaven. And if that's the case, then these thrones also seem to be in heaven. So this reign of Jesus could very well be a spiritual heavenly one as well. And we have these martyrs there. These martyrs were beheaded for their persistence at communicating the gospel. 
These were defined by the spreading of the gospel, and through their evangelism, they were able then to withstand the beast. This should be a conviction for us today. Our faith is only as resilient as our own evangelistic efforts. Let me say that, that phrase again. Our faith is only as resilient as is our evangelistic efforts. Look at verses 5 and 6. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, so this first resurrection could possibly be referring to a period of resurrection that occurs before the second or final resurrection. The second resurrection is the resurrection of the wicked in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, um, or the, the, the resurrection of everybody else, I guess I should say. For example, uh, Christ was the first resurrection, the first fruits of resurrection, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. Other believers were then resurrected in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And then you have two saints being resurrected in Revelation 11, verses 3 and 11. Uh, then you have here the martyr's resurrection in Revelation 20, verses 4 and 5. So the first resurrection could be... Uh, the resurrection of the believers um, that takes place in stages. Some would suggest that to be raised, what that means to this first resurrection, to be raised is to be given an eternal body. And this idea comes from Christ himself being raised, that in between his death and resurrection, he was in heaven, as he himself refers in Luke 23, verse 43. So he was in heaven, even though he had not been raised yet. Then when he was raised, he was physically seen and he was physically touched, confirming a physical resurrected body. So those who are raised as believers with a resurrected body can no longer then be touched by death. For eternal death is powerless against eternal life. Look at verses 7 and 8. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Now, he says there in verse 7, when the thousand years are ended, when can literally mean, in the Greek, it can mean whenever. This may very well not refer to a specific time when Satan will be released, as it ought if the thousand years were literal, but rather to whenever he is released, when God allows him out. If the thousand years are figurative, that's what that would be referring to. He will then be released. He does not escape from the abyss. He does not break out. Of the abyss, his movements and activities are limited and restricted by one who is more powerful than he. So Satan is now allowed to deceive again. And then John mentions Gog and Magog, which are a specific reference to Ezekiel 38, <clears throat> and they are evil 
anti-God enemies from the north there in Ezekiel 38. They here, though, they represent all of the evil people, everyone who is left who are not believers. Satan is attempting to amass an army big enough to defeat God and his army. Look at verses 9 and 10. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. So Satan gathers up the armies of the world to fight against God and his kingdom by making war against the followers of Jesus, because they are the kingdom of God. And the army of evil set up its camp against the believers. But God intervenes with overwhelming power. And the armies there are defeated. And Satan is thrown into the punishment created for him when he rebelled against God. He will be a resident of hell and not the operator of it. Though pop culture depicts Satan and his minions as the tormentors of eternity, they themselves will be tormented for eternity. Now, Jesus himself said in Matthew 25, 41, that the eternal fire, hell, the lake of fire, was prepared initially for eternal punishment for the devil and his angels. That is why hell exists. Anyone rebelling against God, anyone refusing to follow God, uh, uh, receive the lordship of Christ, uh, anyone refusing to, to, to follow Jesus, being led initially by Satan and his angels, will receive the same punishment, justice, for that decision. Verses 11 and 12. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no one was found for them, or no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. God's presence is so great and terrible that heaven and earth flee. They can't function when God shows up in full glory. And anyway, they're no longer necessary. And ultimately, they would have expired in the face of eternity. Now, without an earth, everyone would be dead. No matter one's societal standing or cultural value, everyone stands before the great white throne. And there's a great group of books there containing everything ever done by anyone. And there's also another book lying open. It's the book of life. Everyone is judged according to what is written in these books. Now, what's written in the books does not, the, the one single pile of books does not determine their eternal destination. The book of life does, as we're going to see here next. Verses 13 to 15. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Hades, he mentions here, we see Hades is the temporary residence of those who do not believe in Jesus. 
Unbelievers do not immediately go to hell when they die. In contrast to believers for whom death is to be at home with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8. So believers, when they die, immediately enter into the presence of God. Unbelievers don't immediately go to hell, the lake of fire. They go to this place called Hades that he talks about here. Because there's a reason for this. Remember why hell was created. The first residence of hell will be the beast, the false prophet, and Satan himself. And once Satan takes up residence in hell, being tormented, being punished, not, you know, reigning over it, but in submission to it, then others will be given that place. And then as they are no longer needed, death and Hades will be thrown away. There will be no more death. There will be no more Hades anymore. And every dead person, wherever they died, then is brought to be judged. Their physical bodies from death are here joined with their spirits from Hades to receive their judgments, which will result in eternity in hell. Death no longer has power, for God destroys it. Death is dead. Death and Hades are thrown into hell because they will no longer be used. Then those whose names are not in the book of life, those who have chosen to not believe in Jesus, are thrown into hell as well. And this right here, this should be a source of motivation for the believer to tell as many people as possible about the saving grace of the gospel. Now, that's the end of chapter 20. So thank you for joining us as we've examined Revelation 20. And we're going to continue to journey through the rest of the book of Revelation over the next few weeks. So join us next time as we continue to see what God is communicating to us through his revelation. And I'll catch you in the next one.